Okay, and I just want you to know green space is coming. I'm really excited, but green space is coming. Okay, uh, idols. We've been doing this, the real Game of Thrones, going through this series on our idols, and I'm really excited about this morning's. It's, it's something that's had my mind and heart since this summer, this story, and so I'm really excited to share this. We will be having the Lord's table at the end of the service. It's very appropriate today. Uh, quick warning, if you have children in here, there's going to be a couple of times when you might want to distract them. Not, nothing major, but uh, like maybe right now, you might, you might want to say, hey, look at that. Can you draw a picture of Garen on that or something? Um, and we do remind the small groups, we do have the this sheet for you to take notes because you will be talking about this this week. Okay. One of the key passages in the Bible related to idolatry is Isaiah 54, 5, which says this, for your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, he is called the God of all the earth. This passage identifies three important roles which God and God alone is to play in our lives. He is our spiritual husband, the one who is to have our supreme love and affection. He is also our Lord. He is the master who deserves our absolute allegiance and obedience. And finally, God is our Redeemer. He's our Savior, the only one to whom we should look for our ultimate security and salvation. He is to be the one that we love, trust, and obey. Love, trust, and obey. So in light of this, it's not surprising that the Bible uses three basic metaphors to describe to help people relate to their idols, the idols of their heart. Because an idol is anything that we love, trust, and obey above all else. It is anything that captures my attention and my affections that becomes my primary source of assurance, gains my ultimate allegiance with the result that God no longer has preeminence in my life. So in the Bible, our relationship with God, um, I really want to focus on the first one today, okay, the love. So in the Bible, our relationship with God is spoken of in terms of being a spouse. The Old Testament spoke of Israel as God's wife. The New Testament speaks of God's people as being His bride. So to commit idolatry, to pursue other lovers, is equivalent to spiritual adultery. That's why, I mean, we see this in the New and the Old Testament. That's why we've looked at James. We see this in James, um, a key passage on idolatry in the New Testament. Have you ever noticed the language of James? This didn't catch my eye till about two years ago. I'd read this hundreds of times and didn't realize, as your children are like drawing a nice picture of something right now, just didn't realize that the language of it, it's the language of love and of sexual relations. Do you realize that? I, for a long time, that didn't catch me. It can be so easy to miss because he says that we're dragged away by our over-desires, our epithumia, right? And they entice us, and so we take the invitation and we go to bed with them, and then in going to bed with them, we conceive, and then from that conception, that gives birth to sin, and then eventually there's a grandchild, another birth. But do you see that 
the sexual metaphor, the sexual language that's in James. The reason he has that language is because that whole idea of God being our spouse and of idolatry being adultery is really significant. That's why he has that language in there. It's one of the common themes in the Old Testament prophets that Israel had been enticed away by her lovers and had abandoned God, her true husband. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel all talk a lot about God, I mean Israel in this way. Um, that's why we see in Jeremiah 2 and 3, I just took, I, you take that and you pick out some key things. The word of the Lord came to me. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me. But you said, I love other gods and I must go after them. Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. You have lived as a prostitute with many lovers, like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so that you have been unfaithful to me. Isn't that really strong language? Shouldn't that like strike you? It does me. It like strikes to my heart. Because it's, what was true of them is no different with us. God is to be our true spiritual spouse, the one whom we desire, the one in whom we delight, the one that we love supremely. And as our husband, our spiritual husband, he demands exclusive love and devotion. But what I do, what we do is we run to other lovers. I think we so easily take our eyes off of him and we begin to desire and delight other things. Jason Hubner. I'm just kidding. Those came from the Hubner house, but Jason doesn't use those, right? Bigger. Yeah. Big ones. Oh, bigger ones. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, we don't, or lovers like this, I have no idea who would love this kind of thing, but um, in essence, we have love affairs with our career, with our family, with our children, with money, with shopping, with knowledge, with beauty or brawn. And these things, this love language is interesting because I think it, it's the idea that they make us feel loved and valuable when we chase after these false lovers. Um, and we commit spiritual adultery with them. And when we begin to love something more than God, um, what we're really looking for is something to provide for us with that sense of personal value, that personal significance, personal worth. That's what love is. We're seeking that. Um, so the idols that we love are the things that we delight in more than God, hoping to find in them that sense of love and value. And... That's kind of what's going on with that. So, again, this is a big theme in the three major prophets. It's also the big theme of the book of Hosea, and I love Hosea, and it's the Hosea that I want to focus on today. If you don't know the story, I'm going to try to give it, I mean, as we go through it a little bit, if you don't know the story. Um, but the story of Hosea and Gomer, and here's what Hosea 1 Here's how the book starts. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of of Dib Diblaim. So, he marries this promiscuous woman, takes her in. Um, some translations say she was already 
a prostitute at that point. There's some debate as to if which came first, but God told her to, him to marry this promiscuous woman. He did. If you read the rest of chapter 1, he has three children by her. And then soon after they get married, we don't know at what point, we're told in chapter 3, verse 1, that she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. She has actually, we learn, has left him, has been living with other lovers, and is now committing adultery against him. She has abandoned him. And this story is told, there's two things I want us to take away from this story today, okay? Two really key things. Here's the first one, that loving Israel and loving us is like loving an adulterous wife. Loving Israel and loving us is like loving an adulterous wife. Essentially, God is saying to Hosea, I want you to marry the most promiscuous woman you can find. I want you to marry her and have children. I want you to love her, to give your whole heart to her. And she's going to spit in your face, and she's going to rip out your heart, and she's going to stomp on it, and she's going to destroy her own life, ruin the children's life, and he's going to make your life a living you-know-what. So people will understand what it means for me to love, when, what, to love them, what they are like for me to love. So through his experience, we can get a sense of how God feels. I was uh, wanting to use, I like to use pictures, right? I'm a visual learner. So I typed in on Google image, you know, Gomer, because I wanted a nice picture of Gomer. That's what came up. <laughs> Some of these little kids are like, an army man, okay? Uh, <laughs> so, the story of Gomer, Hosea and Gomer, is the story of God and Israel. I want you to look at some of the stuff that Hosea says about their relationship. Um, the one, God had saved Israel unconditionally, brought her out of Egypt. And he says in chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, I cared for you in the wilderness and the land of burning heat when I fed them and they were satisfied. But even though he had, he had rescued them undeservedly, unconditionally, and brought them out of that place, here's what he says, that she became unfaithful, Israel. Like an adulterous wife, this land of, is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. You adulterous wife, you prefer strangers to your own husband. Scandalous, right? Not only was she unfaithful and adulterous, but Israel literally prostituted herself to her idols. He said a spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They're unfaithful to their God. You love the wages of a prostitute. They turn from him, deserted him. It says they've deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution. Jeremiah, we know this scripture. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. So they totally abandoned him, the God who had saved and delivered him. They forgot him. She went after her lovers, but she forgot I fed them. They were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. How often does that happen, right? Things go good. God's blessing you. And then we become proud and start chasing those things, and we forget Him. And they didn't even acknowledge Him anymore, we're told. Forgot Him, wouldn't even acknowledge Him. And they even used the good gifts of God to allure their idols. There's a lot of passages that talk about this. 
I just narrowed it down to Hosea 2.8. She's not acknowledged that I was the one who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. There's a passage in Ezekiel that's really powerful of how they took the gifts of God and used the gifts of God to lure their idols to them. And they became insatiable in their pursuit of these other lovers. In Hosea 2.5, she said, I will go after my lovers. Hosea 5.11 says she's intent on pursuing her idols. They're burning like an oven whose fire the baker needs to stir. It talks in Ezekiel about that they're almost like a, a donkey, a male donkey pursuing other donkeys that are in heat, that they're like so insatiable and they're, they're seeking of these, other, of these other gods, of these other lovers. And look at this passage. It says in Hosea 4, 7, they exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. Have we ever seen that before? Jeremiah 2, Romans chapter 1, this idea of exchanging God for something that's less than Him. And we're told they were determined and totally stubborn in this pursuit. My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God most high. Hosea 4.16, the Israelites are stubborn, stubborn like a heifer. Imagine what it must feel like to God, what that must have felt like. He marries them as a, he, he saves them, marries them, that whole thing, the whole covenant in Sinai is actually a Jewish marriage ceremony, culturally if you look at it. He gives His total love, His total faithfulness to them. And yet they chase other lovers and give themselves into others' arms. Could you imagine how God must feel? Imagine losing your closest partner, the person you've married and given your life to. And they abandon you and on the side have other lovers. Can you imagine the betrayal and how that feels? That's why God's telling the story. This is how He feels. The passage that really strikes me is Hosea 6.4, which says, What can I do with you, Ephraim? How, what can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. This is a good time to have your kids like draw another picture, maybe, I don't know. Do something in the bulletin. Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. This is my story. You know that? I was saved by Jesus from my sin, and I was made part of His bride, and yet I still abandon Him for other lovers. My love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears so easily. How often have I forsaken my first love? I'm so easily enticed away in the arms of lovers. In the words of Jen Pollock, I have trifling flings with a myriad of idols. I have emotional affairs with them all the time. And I don't want to hear it, it's tough language, but deep down I know it's true that God sees my adultery as me sleeping around on Him, betting my various lovers. 
prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. The problem isn't that I haven't or we haven't chosen Jesus and to follow Him, right? Because we have. The problem is, is that I or we, I think we've tried following Him without leaving some things behind. That's, that's the problem. Uh, the diagnostic sheet this week is to help us find our lovers. You guys remember Jack Sparrow? And his compass, what did his compass point to? What did his compass point to in the movies? To what? The thing he most desired. The thing he most desired. So this week, this is like a compass. If you want to know what your lovers are, you got to look to your deepest desires, and you find them in a couple of ways. First of all, you find them in what you daydream about, what you dream about, daydream what you think about all the time. That's one place. That's part of the compass of finding what your lovers are is what do you think about all the time. The second way that's on here to find out what your lovers are is to ask the question, where do I spend my time, my money, and my energy? Because if you follow the trail of your time and your money and your energy, at the end of that trail will be the shrines of your lovers. So that's what uh, the diagnostic is for this week. So can I get back to the story of God and Israel? Um, they did not flourish in their pursuit of those idols. I'm going to come back to this in a couple of weeks. Uh, the week after, in three weeks, the week after the missions conference, I'm going to talk about, we're going to come back to Hosea and look at the ways that our idols fail us and actually bring us to ruin. But Isaiah 4.10 says, they will engage in prostitution but not flourish. More than that, you are destroyed, Israel, because you're against me, against your helper that those don't lead to the good life. But for now, I wanna, I'm going to come to that idea of how they destroy us in three weeks. But for now, I want to come to an idea that is really, really important to me, a concept that I learned in reading Hosea several years ago that stood out to me, that God actually, not only will your idols fail you and destroy you in and of themselves, but God will thwart you in your pursuit of those other lovers. He did that with Israel. He thwarted them. Um, and he did it because he says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over? My heart is changed within me. All of my compassions aroused. And so therefore, she said, I'll go after my lovers who give me my food, my water, my wool, my linen, my olive oil, my drink. Here's what God says. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. Haggai has the same idea. In chapter 1, this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but never drink. Oh, you, I'm sorry, you eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages, and you put them in purses with holes in it. Because God comes against us in our pursuit of those things, and He actually thwarts our ability to get from them the thing that we want. They can't provide them anyways but He will thwart that. Why does He thwart us in our pursuit of idols? I love this. In Ezekiel 14.5, I will do this to what? To recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. And then when I thwart her, she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off 
the now. That's why he thwarts. That's why God thwarts us. So here's the second thing I want us to learn today. Not only is loving Israel and loving us like loving an adulterous wife to God, but more importantly, being loved by God is like the love of a passionate and fully devoted husband. Being loved by God is like the love of a passionate and fully devoted husband. Don't you love that picture, by the way? Isn't that cool? I just, I thought that was such a, just the look of Gomer's face, the tenderness of Hosea. This idea of thwarting. God will, at some point in time, He will begin to thwart you, He'll thwart me in my pursuit of idols. He will intervene and He'll frustrate me. He will come against me at the point. So He'll come against me, but at the point of my adultery. And why does God do that? Why does He thwart us in our spiritual adultery? Have you ever heard the phrase, be careful what you ask for? I mean, what's that mean? Be careful what you desire. Be careful what you pursue. Don't parents say that all the time, or at least we think it, okay? It's that idea that many times getting your heart's deepest desire will only lead to disaster, and parents know this, and God knows this, and that's why God will thwart us at the point of our adultery. He thwarts our idols because He is, He overwhelmingly, unconditionally, passionately, zealously, recklessly is zealous for us like a husband. He knows that we're only whole and fulfilled in Him. He created us for a relationship with Himself, and He knows that we will never find true happiness in our counterfeit idols. And so out of His goodness and love, He exposes them for what they truly are. He knows they will ultimately fail us, that they will lead us to the path, down the path to ruin, and He will expose them for their inability to function as a stable center of life. God knows that we cannot flourish drinking water from broken, cracked cisterns, that we only flourish when we come to the true source of living water. And so He will thwart us at our point of idolatry every time. Eventually, at some point, He will do that because it's the most loving thing that He can do. It's the most loving thing He can do. Several years ago, Al quoted Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish, one of my ancestors knew him, I don't know, a Scottish pastor um, from the 17th century. And this quote was so profound that I keep it in my phone. Here's what he said, if God had told me some time ago that He was about to make me as happy as I could be in this world and then had told me that He should begin by crippling me and all my limbs and removing from me all my unusual sources of enjoyment, I should have thought it a very strange mode of accomplishing His purpose. And yet, how is His wisdom manifest even in this? For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room, idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light, and you wish to make him truly happy, you would begin by blowing out all of his lamps and then throw open the shutters to let in the light of heaven." Isn't that great? That is exactly why God thwarts us in our idolatry. But sadly, a lot of us, when He begins to thwart us, we won't listen or pay attention, and we keep pursuing it, and it has to get to the point that His thwarting of that uh, gets pretty, pretty nasty, right? And I think some of us have been there to where we've gotten the point that we've followed something to a pretty bad point. Okay, this is the story of... Hosea and Gomer, by the way. 
We're going to see in a moment, but Gomer did not flourish in the hands of her lovers. So the Lord said to, to, to Hosea, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man as an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. So he went and got her. And I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way for you. So he goes and gets her, and he brings her back unconditionally. And this was a story of God with Israel. In Hosea 1.10, there's the yet, the therefore the afterward that sets up what God does to Israel. And I love this passage. I just want to read it and just take in the words of how beautiful this is, of God being a, such a loving, devoted husband. So after he thwarts her and she's ready to turn back, remember verse 7, I'm going to go back to my husband because it was better there. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. God is going to woo her back to himself. I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor, that suffering she was going through, the valley of trouble, it will become a door of hope. And there, while I woo her, she will respond, as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you, you will no longer call me my master. Have you ever heard anything like that anywhere? Anywhere? Where Jesus says to his disciples the night before he dies, you're not going to call me master anymore. You're going to start calling me friend. Reminds me so much of Jesus. I will remove the names of the, the bales from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that they all may lay down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion, and I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. And in that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I'll respond to the skies. They will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, the olive oil. They'll respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one, I will say to those who are called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Isn't that a beautiful love story? Takes her to the wilderness, woos her, remarries, gives his faithfulness. And then we're told in Hosea 14, it says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger is turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree, his fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the green. Not flourishing and chasing their other lovers, but he will make them flourish. Pretty cool story, huh? I love the story of Hosea. But up to this point in time, I've been holding some cards close to my vest. And the thing I didn't tell you that some of you probably know is that when Hosea went and got Gomer, he had to rescue her from slavery. When he went to get her, it says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. 
You know he could have had her stoned by the law on that day? Do you know he could have had her stoned? Instead, he buys her back. And the fact that he had to pay money meant that she had become a slave. He chose personal abject humiliation. He chose mercy and grace over rejection and punishment. He cared more about her than he did himself. And I want you to know it cost him greatly. This 15 shekels and then this Homer and Lethic of barley, like what are those? That Homer and Lethic of barley is the equivalent of 15 more shekels. 30 shekels of silver was the price of a slave. It was the price he had to buy her back. Because not much different than now, but in that day, to get into, to, to, to commit adultery and live with another man in their culture almost inevitably live, ended up being thrown out on the street as a prostitute, and you would have a pimp, and it was probably one of those lovers that was pimping her, and he had come to own her. That's how a lot of sexual trafficking is still to this day. And to buy her back would have taken 30 shekels of silver because she was a slave to him. That was half of a year's wages in that day. 30 shekels of silver. If the average U.S. income is around $45,000, it would have cost him like $22,000, $23,000 to get her back. That was the price of a slave. Pretty amazing, isn't it? The price that he was willing to pay. But you know, in his day, only rich people had this much coinage. That isn't how most exchange happened. Um, Most exchange happened trading things, cows, you know, chickens, eggs, whatever. And Hosea didn't have the money. He had 15 shekels, which is an indication that he was not in the upper class. So he had to make up the other half in barley, which was the main grain of peasants in their culture. One homer and one lethic of barley was equivalent to 12 bushels of barley in today's measurement. One bushel is eight gallons of barley, so eight gallons at 12 bushels would be 96 dry gallons of barley. That's how much barley he would have had to have given for her. One bushel of barley weighed 48 pounds, so those 96 dry gallons of barley would have weighed 576 pounds. Can you imagine hauling that to that man? A today's yield of 100 bushels an acre it would have taken a today's yield half an acre to produce that much barley. Four months of work of cultivating that crop. They didn't have the yields we have. The likelihood is he had to grow a whole acre of barley to pay her, to get her back, to make up the difference in the lack of silver that he had. Do you see how amazing his love was, how unconditional, how passionate? That he would grow all of that that he would weigh all that out, that he would haul it to that man in public, pay him for it to win her back. And he took her home and he faithfully loved her. That's profound love, isn't it? Here's what God says about Israel. I long to redeem them, yet I will show love to Judah and I will save them. I, the Lord their God, will save them. Then when I make atonement for all you have done. These are all contexts of their idolatry and buying them back. That redeeming word is a slave word to redeem from slavery, to buy back. So his desire is to redeem them, to save them, 
to make atonement for them. You see those words? Those words look familiar if you follow Jesus. Are those not significant words to redeem, to save, to make atonement? This story is my story. But most importantly, I want to point to God because it's His story. He's the hero of the story, and I want to end with Him. Despite the fact of my multiple infidelities, in spite of my enslavement to sin and to Satan, out of His unconditional, passionate, zealous, reckless love for me, God did everything to bring me back to Himself. Everything. He cares more about me than He cares what it will cost Him to win me back. And God chose personal abject humiliation just like Hosea did. He chose mercy and grace rather than rejection and punishment. And you guys know this. He did this at great cost to Himself, didn't He? In fact, He gave all for me. It cost the Holy Spirit years, years of being rejected and ignored. It cost the Father His Son. For God loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son. And it cost Jesus, among countless other things, it cost Him His life. Here's how great our God is, how deep His passion runs for us, how unconditional is His love. It cost Him everything to win us back. And though he, we left Him, He pursues us at all costs. And here's what Peter says, it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ. It wasn't 15 shekels of silver and 560 pounds, 576 pounds of barley. It was His blood that He paid to win me back. God made him who had no sin to be sin offering for us. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Robert, won't you come up? We're going to have communion here in a second. And we begin to gain freedom from our idols. We begin to gain freedom, which is what we're going to talk about at the end, but we're moving in that direction. I think when we realize how much our idolatry betrays Him as our spiritual spouse, the pain that it causes Him, how much it costs Him to win us back, and I think when we see the pain of our betrayal and we see the cost that it is to Him, and the beauty of Him giving everything to draw us back to Himself, we begin, just like Israel, we begin to want Him more when we see the beauty of who He is. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going we're to partake of the communion together as we think about this. There are five tables in here, two in the back, three up front. If you need a gluten-free communion table, the one on the back over there is gluten-free. 
We're also going to have a time of prayer. I mean, if you are needing prayer for anything, there are going to be two couples in the back who are going to be wearing these, and you can go to them and seek prayer. But I want us to do communion this morning with this whole story in mind, okay? And by the way, if you're here and you follow Jesus, even if you're not a part of this church, you're welcome to join us. Um, We would love to have you, if you follow Jesus, to take this. But I want us to do this communion in light of this story, in light of our betrayal, all the lovers that we bed down. And we deserve to be stoned, but rather than reject us, He chose to give all to win us back. Isn't that a beautiful story? Isn't that a beautiful God that we serve? So I want us to come this morning with this in mind. I want us to come reflecting on the things that we love more than Him, that we sneak out at night to pursue. The pain of Him, in Him from that, and the cost to win Him back, win us back. So we're told on the night, can my communion servers come on up? The people that are going to be at the tables, if you'd come on up. So on the night before he was crucified, for us, he sat down with his followers to take a Passover meal. They didn't know that it would be his last. And among those sitting at that table was the one friend who would betray him and would sell him for what? 30 pieces of silver. Because that's what humanity does to their creator. We reject him and we sell him off for the price of an abject slave. And that's what, he, that's what Judas did. But loving us is like, I mean, loving us is like loving an adulterous wife. But we're at this table because being loved by God is like the love of a passionately zealous, fully devoted husband. So we give thanks for that. So after taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, take this and divide it among you. And then he took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. This is my all. My 15 pieces of silver, my Homer and Lethic of barley, this is what's given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. Matthew says, poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of me. So let me pray, and then we can come um, and partake with all that in our minds. So, Father, come in great humility because the story reminds me of how prone my heart is to wander. And then to you, I'm chasing other lovers, sleeping around on you. And just like Hosea went and paid the price to win Gomer back, you and your love came and paid the full price of your blood to buy me back. And so we come today in remembrance of that and grateful to you. Thank you for this gift of your life through your sacrifice. We pray in the name of Jesus, the one who gave all. Amen. So.
come to pick a table, come as you're ready. You'll just peel off a piece.